Good morning. This morning's gospel, we find Jesus back in the temple, preaching to the crowds on a new way to live and to love. The antagonists of the story are the scribes and Pharisees, who were held up as the brightest people of their time, and thus they held an authoritative power and position in the temple. They were entrenched in a religious system that shunned and shamed the unclean and the uneducated. So this Jesus, who was welcoming the sinners and the prostitutes and gaining all the attention, but he had to be dealt with. And what they felt was a well-laid trap. The bait for this trap is this married woman caught in adultery and the Jewish law dictating that she must be stoned. But Jesus is aware of the inequity that sits behind these charges, as well as the lack of compassion and utter shame being flung onto this woman who's about to lose her life. Nevertheless, Jesus is faced with this dilemma in answering the question of what should be done to this woman. See, Roman law prohibited the Jews from extracting the death penalty when it was a sentence dictated by Jewish law. If he insisted on having her stoned, he'd have to answer to the Romans. If he pardoned her, he would be seen as an accomplice in the eyes of the Jews. It seems that there was no way for Jesus to answer the question without being found guilty of either Roman or Jewish law. So on the surface, this story that we've heard so many times seems to be pretty straightforward. The trap is laid by the Jewish authorities. The accused woman is ready to be stoned. And Jesus is caught in the middle. This morning, I think we need to pause. I think we need to give this story our respect, but respect in the literal sense. See, respect causes us to look back again, past our first gaze, that gaze that we often measure up somebody according to our own personal criteria, and look again a second time in a deeper way with more understanding and more compassion. So then let's take a look at all the wounded in this story, beginning with the easiest one to identify, the accused woman. See, there's no mention that she denies the charges, but she knows carries a sentence of death. So you need to ask what would have motivated her to commit such an act. Keep in mind during the time of Jesus, The girls were married at the age of 12 or 13 and often to older extended family members. Daughters were hidden from society, carried no rights, no ability for an education, basically were considered property. So we have no idea what was going on in her life, just like we have no idea what goes goes on in the lives of those that we encounter each day. Perhaps she was abused, abandoned, depressed, hopeless. Perhaps her illicit relationship was with the only person who ever showed her any sense of true love. Doesn't excuse her sin, but allows us to respect, to take a second deeper look at this story. A story not unlike one of the many stories in our own lives that may be filled with loss and suffering, and pain, and regret. Giving each of us some sense of how she must have felt standing there before Jesus, 
filled with humiliation, terror, and shame. Now let's take a look at the other group of wounded people, the Jewish authorities. Wait, what? You must be saying to yourself, wait a second, they're not wounded, they're the bad guys. But again, let's take a look, a second look, a deeper look. The scribes, they were lawyers who wrote and interpreted the law. The Pharisees, they were just middle-class people who spent all their time and energy just living 643 Judaic laws. To such an extreme that for some of them, some of them their hands were likely bleeding from the constant washing all day long and just trying to be staying clean and trying to please this God that they're so terrified. So imagine their woundedness and deep anger towards this rabbi, Jesus, who shows up doling out love and grace and forgiveness and being called the Messiah. Because for them, he's nothing like the Christ that they've dedicated their entire life to believing in and suffering for. So what they did is they launched this half-baked plan to trap Jesus by bringing the accused woman forward and asking him, what should we do? But they, of all people know that their own laws dictated for that action to have taken place. Both the man and the woman and two witnesses all had to be brought forward. And then once that was done, the priest was then to write, literally in the dirt, the, um, the charges against the person and the name of the accused. Thus, we have a deeper understanding of what Jesus was likely doing when he was writing on the ground. He was communicating to the accusers, saying, actually, you're the ones who are now breaking the law by bringing only this woman forward and shaming her. And in doing so, he gave them a chance to repent or to do what they did and walk away. With the stones all laying on the ground, Jesus is left with the woman. What a powerful moment this had to be as this humiliated and petrified woman who was about to be stoned faces the compassionate Jesus, who without shaming her just says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, go take ownership of your life and make changes where necessary. So this story gives us two wounded parties, one whose deep belief is shattered that their God is supposed to be an angry, vengeful God who needs to be placated, and the other who knows she has done wrong but experiences the grace and forgiveness of the Messiah. But notice, at no time does Jesus separate or divide. Matter of fact, he does everything he can to include the scribes, the Pharisees, and the woman. And throughout it all, remember, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Rather, he came to remind and reteach his faith the essential function of religion, religio, and that is to realign and reconnect, to help us see the world and ourselves in wholeness in Christ, rather than wasting any time judging who is in and who is out. For every person, every person is a child of God with infinite dignity and value. This past week, I was fortunate enough to be in Albuquerque with Franciscan Father Richard Rohr for his conference dedicated to breaking open his latest New York Times best-selling book, 
the universal Christ. And in that book, he writes the following. The divine presence seeks wholeness and connection and communion, not separation or division. We must concentrate on including, as Jesus clearly did, instead of excluding, which he never did. The only people that Jesus seemed to exclude were precisely those who refused to know that they were ordinary sinners just like everybody else. The only thing he excluded was exclusion itself. What a difference this can make when you walk through your day and encounter other people and nothing and no one needs to be excluded. The proof that you are a mature Christian is when you can see Christ everywhere, in everyone and everything. My brothers and sisters, as we near the end of Lent, I'd encourage all of us to take some time to see where each of us may be excluding another for whatever reason, and in doing so, blinded to the presence of Christ who is inherent in each of us. The same Christ who desires to be in relationship with us regardless of what we have done or what we have failed to do. A relationship where there's no shame, only forgiveness. There's no shunning, only acceptance. No stones, just a warm embrace. And no admonishment, but the call to see our own imperfections, the call to change our ways, the Lenten call to let go of our past and start each day anew by respecting and reconnecting our lives through Christ our Lord. Amen.